They just came on now. Let's try to get closer to the stage. Sorry. Do you want to go on my shoulders? Yeah, that'd be unreal, thanks. Wow. Three celebrates connections made by music this summer. Find out more at 3.ie forward slash music. Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest, Gail Jones, has been shortlisted for nearly every major Australian award, including the Miles Franklin, and has won many of these awards, including the Western Australia Premier's Award for Fiction, the Nita B. Kibble Award, the Steele Rudd Award, and the Age Book of the Year Award, um, just to name a few. She's the author of many books, including five novels, the most recent of which, Five Bells, will form the focus of our conversation today. Gail, welcome. Good morning, Maggie. Now, before we begin, not all the listeners um, will have read Five Bells yet. Um, can you just read us a little bit from, from the book, just to give our listeners a sense of um, your prose? Mm, sure. Um, I'll read from the very opening of the book. So it's about three pages. Circular key. She loved even the sound of it. Before she saw the bowl of bright water swelling like something sexual. Before she saw the blue unprecedented and the clear sky sloping upwards. She knew from the noted words it would be a circle like no other, key to a new world. The train swung in a wide arc to emerge alongside sturdy buildings, and there it was, the first glimpses through struts of ironwork, and those blurred partial visions were a quiet pleasure. Down the escalator, rumbling with its heavy body cargo, through the electronic turnstile which captured her bent ticket, then caught in the crowd, she was carried outside. There was confusion at first, the shock of sudden light, all the signs, all the clamour. But the vista resolved and she saw before her the row of ferry ports, each looking like a primary colour holiday pavilion, and the boats bobbing their green and yellow forms, toy-like, arriving, absorbing slow lines of passengers, departing. With a trampoline heart, she saw the bridge to her left, its modern shape, its optimistic up-arching. Familiar from postcards and television commercials, here now, here now, was the very thing itself, neat and enthralling. There were tiny flags on top and the silhouetted ant forms of people arduously climbing the steep bow. It looked stamped against the sky, as if nothing could remove it. It looked indelible, a coat hanger, guidebooks said, but it was so much grander than that it implied. The coherence of it, the embrace the span of frozen hard labour, those bold pylons at the end, the, million, the multi-millions of hidden rivets. Ellie gawked like a child, unironic. She remembered something from school days. Janus, with his two faces, is the god of bridges, since bridges look both ways and are always double. There was the limpid memory of her school teacher, Miss Morrison, drawing Janus on a blackboard, her inexpert, freckled hand trailing the chalk line of two profiles. With her back to the class, there was a kind of pathos to her form. She had thick set calves and a curvature of the spine, and the class would have snickered in derision had it not been for her storytelling, which made any image so much less than the words it referred to. Roman God, underlined. The Janus profiles not matching. A simple image on the blackboard snagged at her feelings, and Ellie had loved it because it failed, 
because there was no mirror and no symmetry, and because the sight of Miss Morrison's firm calves always soothed and reassured her. From somewhere drifted the sound of a busking didgeridoo with an electronic backbeat. Boom, 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 boom. The didgeridoo dissolved in the air, thick and newly ancient. For tourists, Ellie thought, with no disparagement. For me, for all of it. Boom, 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 boom. In a democratic throng, in a pandemonium of the crowd, she saw sunlight on the heads of Americans and Japanese. She saw small children with ice creams and tour groups with cameras. She heard how fine weather might liberate the kind of relaxed, tinkling chatter. There was a newsstand with tiers of papers in several languages, trembling in a light breeze, and people in booths here and there, selling ferry tickets behind glass. There was a human statue in pale robes, resembling something rather classical, and before him a flattened hat in which shone a few coins. A fringe of bystanders stood around, considering the many forms of art. Janus, origin of January. Ellie turned like someone remembering, in the other direction. She had yet to see it fully. Past the last pier and the last ferry, there was a wharf with a line of ugly buildings, and beyond that, yes, an unimpeded view. It was moon-white, and seemed to hold within it a great, serious stillness. The fan of its chambers leant together, inclining to the water. An unfolding thing, shutters, a sequence of sorts. Ellie marveled that it had ever been created at all, so singular a building, so potentially faddish or odd, and that shape of supplication, like a body bending into the abstraction of a low bow or a theological gesture. Ellie could imagine music in there, but not people somehow. It looked poised in a kind of alertness to acoustical meanings, concentrating on sound waves, open to circuit and flow. Yes, there it was, leaning into the pure morning sky. Ellie raised her camera and clicked, most photographed building in Sydney. In the viewfinder, it was flattened to an assemblage of planes and curves. Perfect futurism. Marinetti might have dreamt it. Unmediated joy was nowadays unfashionable, not to mention the banal thrill of a famous city icon. But Ellie's heart opened like that form unfolding into the blue. She was filled with corny delight and ordinary elation. Behind her rattled train noise, reverberated up high, and the didgeridoo, now barely audible, continued its low, soft moaning. A child sounded a squeal, a fairy churned away. From another came the clang of a falling gunplank and the sound of passengers disembarking. Somewhere behind her, the Rolling Stones, jumping Jack Flash, sounded in a tinny ringtone. Boom, boom, distant now. Boom, 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 boom. And above it all, a melody of voices that seemed to arise from the water. Ellie felt herself at the intersection of so many currents of information. Why not be joyful against all the odds? Why not be childlike? She took a swig from her plastic water bottle and jointly raised it. Cheers. She began to stride with her cotton sun hat and her small backpack and this unexpected quiver in her chest. Ellie walked out into the live-long Sydney day. Sunshine swept around her. The harbour almost glittered. She lifted her face to the sky and smiled to herself. She felt as if, yes, yes, she was breathing in life. Thanks. <laughs> It's such a, a sensual opening. I, I almost feel, and I think readers feel, that um, you know they're there on on the harbour, feeling all of these 
sounds, the sensations, even the taste of the water coming through? Um, I hope so. I did want to evoke um, the place for the first time in its um, in its confusion and its oddity and the light and the, the kind of clamor of the crowds. So I didn't want to name the icons. I didn't want to name the opera house, um, for example, but I wanted a sense of, of the scene sort of unfolding in its sensual pleasure. Um, I should say that the next, it, that, that forms a, a little prologue. There are four characters all arriving at this spot at the same time. And the next little prologic section is, is in fact very gloomy and grim. So it's not all written in that upbeat, joyous way. Yes, I almost felt as if Ellie, in many ways, though, was, she was the pivotal character. We start and we end with her. And she really, um, she reminded me, I mean, I, I guess partially because of my own background, but, you know, I was very much thrown into the early, early 20th century writers, Wolf, Joyce, and Yeats. And, and Ellie herself reminded me a bit of um, Yeats's Chinaman and Lapis Lazuli, you know, the ancient glittering eyes are gay. Right. Um, I mean, I think the reference that's most been made is to Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, as it happens, um, especially in the UK where this has just come out. But I see the piece as an ensemble of characters, um, all given equal time in terms of narrative space. But for me, the most important character is actually Pei Xing, a Chinese woman. Mm. It seems to me that she is the center of value in the text. Yes, and in fact, Pei Xing, too, reminds me of the Chinaman and Mathis Lazuli. Ah, right. No, that's, that's a very interesting connection. I hadn't made that one myself, but it may be lurking in the background since I know that poem. Yes, and, and with Virginia Woolf, and I know, I know the reason why with Mrs. Dalloway and, of course, Ulysses is the one day, but also that there it was, because, of course, there she was in, in Mrs. Dalloway. But for me, the waves loomed very large in my, my mind as I was reading it, almost from the start, this idea of these multiple characters who almost come together as a single character. Mm. Um, well, that's an interesting connection, too, because that's, uh, um, I'm very fond of the waves. I'm very impressed by the audacity of its form. Um, I, I wasn't in any way consciously mimicking a sort of modernist text. Um, I think I'm just saturated in these um, understandings myself of how narrative, time, and memory work together and the ways in which you might write a single day. So although there's a lot of present tense um, information and activity, what happens is that the characters are always pitched back through memory into the past. So there's, a, I hope, an effect of space-time density behind really quite simple um, events of arriving and departing and um, catching trains stepping into spaces, entering and leaving buildings. Yes, I've often, I've often wondered myself, being a fan of that era, why more novelists haven't picked up those threads of, you know, the, as, as you put it, the intersection of so many currents of information. We, we tend to be quite realistic these days in our, in our novel writing. Yes, I suppose what interests me about the modernists is that they weren't afraid, for example, of rapture, of, of feeling excessively excited about being alive and the moment, being in the moment with all of its contending pressures. There's, there's actually a description of Mrs. Dalloway who walks, walks down the street with a sense of... Um, what is it now? Something like um, impending rapture. And um, that, that's nowadays seen um, as a little bit naff and a little bit um, excessive. 
But I, I like to think that, that the amplitude that they that they engaged with between the rapturous and the grief-stricken, between the kind of um, ecstatic attention to the, the, the moment of being and a sense of the way in which memory can capsize one, can become immersive, can destroy your equilibrium. Um, that, it's that, um, that range between, I suppose, excess and deficit that interests me in their work. Hmm. I, I suppose poetry does pick that up quite often now, and as novelists go more and more towards this kind of um, almost, a, a, I guess, a stark realism where memory becomes less important, poetry seems to, to be picking that up, and, and obviously that's a key part of Slessor's poem as well. That's right. I mean, for a novelist, I read a great deal of poetry because I am interested in the lyrical and I am interested in the texture of language. So for me, it's not just about content or plot or getting a story sort of down there. It's about moving through the texture of language, being mediated, um, having one's own experience sort of intercepted by, by linguistic experience, if you like, or the linguistic texture of the telling. But, but at the base of this book is is the poem Five Bells, which I know many New South Wales people do know about. I, I certainly didn't um, know much about it, but it's an elegy um, written in 1927 for a cartoonist called Joe Lynch, who um, fell off a ferry and drowned. Um, and the poet, Kenneth Slessor, wrote 12 years later, was still grieving for his friend and wrote an elegy to his friend, imagining, in a sense, his body still in circular key. The body was never recovered. So when I thought about this, something about that idea that beneath the glittering touristic surface of circular key, there's this dark, lost, um, unrecovered death uh, and persistent mourning, mourning that is still there vividly after 12 years. I found that incredibly moving. So the title, of course, is the title of Kenneth Lesser's poem, and I'm partly paying homage to that kind of sensitivity that beneath everybody's every day, <laughs> beneath the ordinary, we all have these, these vast um, repositories of feelings, of pasts, of memory, and of things unresolved and perhaps undiscovered. Yes. Um, you've spoken of making sense of the world through the symbolic, and uh, I guess that's that seems to me what happens by the end of the book, that there is a kind of, I won't say spiritual, but there is a kind of um, overcoming of all of those flakes of mourning that underpin the, sto the story. It's, it's kind of a happy ending, strangely. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's interesting. I, I don't think of it exactly as a happy ending, but I know what you're getting at. I'm, I'm very interested in art, in the power of writing images, sound, to actually give us some kind of consolation. So it's not, it's, I'm not suggesting there's a redemption in art, but I am suggesting there's a consolation in art. And mine is a book that works very strongly with a sense of patterning and design. And the idea that beneath what, what looked like atomistic individuals just moving independently through the city, there are nevertheless patterns of connection, of solidarity, um, of art, patterns of art moving between them, of, of shared understandings and responses to books or to images. 
So I suppose what you are detecting is my preoccupation with wanting to retrieve something out of that black floating fluid space to insist that, that grief is not the end of the story, but that the end of the story is the pattern. Or the rapture in that moment of shared understanding. Because, and again, this is another nod to the, the 20th century uh, modernists, but um, you very deliberately invoke the dead at the end of the book with the snow falling, and in, in, in your case, the rain falling. And I do. All these consciousnesses together to that single point. That's right. That that was what I was hoping to achieve. And I, I'm, I'm actually very interested in the way that many of us have read some of the same books, that there are there are clearly canonical texts um, that have transformed the way we are and the way we think. And and what might it mean to bring those to the fore, to, to make that um, a kind of thematic preoccupation about about character, that that when we meet someone and we share our cherished uh, memories of, of a particular novel or a particular image in, in a novel, um, there's, it's a remarkable form of connection, I think, and it's a connection through art. It's a connection through something external to ourselves. So I wanted to affirm that without without it sounding too corny. Hmm. So tell me about the genesis of the book. How did it come together for you? Um, I had arrived in... I've, I've come from Western Australia, and I, I came to Sydney three years ago and was on a ferry. I mean, it's it's a little bit... Um, predictable, I guess. I was on a ferry at midnight um, over the black water, and what came to me was not the whole of Kinesthes's poem, but just a few lines: deep and dissolving verticals of light, ferry the fall of moonshine down. Really beautiful lines, I think, about about light in that quavering, um, wavering, <laughs> fluctuating way, entering dark water. So when I returned to my hotel, which is where I was then staying, if I found a place to live in Sydney, I looked up the poem and read it through and was very struck by, I was very moved by it in a way that I almost couldn't explain. It, it seemed to resolve something for me or to shift something for me. So almost immediately I began writing a novel called Five Bells um, about some, and it was vague and inchoate at that point, but I did want to write from that moment of recovering what it means to recover lines of someone else's words in a very in, in a space that is suddenly made symbolic to oneself through that experience. And that sounds very grandiose <laughs> and it was more ordinary than that. It wasn't a modernist epiphany. But it but it was um it was a kind of beautiful moment. Mm. And I guess when you arrived as well in Sydney, you were almost a kind of migrant from the West. <laughs> but that is a strong theme that comes through in the book, is the migrant's perception. And we have all these different perspectives of Circular Key in the Opera House, and each person has a different view of this the same almost character um, set of, I guess, three key icons. Talk to me a bit about that. Well, there are four characters, and they're all from the outside. So two are from Western Australia. They were childhood companions. One is from Ireland, um, a woman in grief for her brother, and and one is from China, um, Peixing, who is from who is a survivor of imprisonment during the Cultural Revolution. So all four are coming from somewhere else. 
Peixing is the only one who, who is a, a resident of Sydney, a long-term resident of Sydney. She's been there about 10 years, and or longer, in fact. And what I wanted to do was to try to recreate that moment where you think that you know something. We've all seen thousands of images of the Opera House, for example. But I've stood in Circular Quay many times and watched tourists walk up to the building and then pause. And you see them, in a sense, being intercepted by something unanticipated, by something they hadn't expected from the image. So I wanted to think about what that means. Is there an address of the beautiful that we encounter when we see icons or monuments? Or is it all just flattened out by too many over-representations, by having seen the image too often? So I'm playing with those kinds of ideas, but also playing with the fact that each of us drags our own history with us, <laughs> that, that at every encounter with an art object, whether it be a painting or a book or the Sydney Opera House, we are inflecting it with our own pasts. And I, I find that endlessly fascinating. I, I continue to be amazed by how much even... Um, I mean, every writer knows that, that readers bring different things to the book that they've written. And that's always very moving and very humbling. Hmm. Do you, you're still working at the University of Western Australia. Um, no, University of Western Sydney. Oh, Western Sydney. Okay. Mm. So, so I've been at Western Sydney for three, almost three and a half years. So tell me a little bit about the intersection between teaching and writing. Oh, well, I, I don't think that scholarly work in literature is to be separated out from creative work in literature. I don't think they're antipathetic, and I don't think they destroy each other. I mean, sometimes it's assumed that, that doing literary critical work will destroy uh, the sort of impulse to create or somehow over-theorize over it or over um, uh, give it too much sort of explanatory weight. But I've always found that being in a university is very stimulating for me and for my writing. And I love being around young people. I love, um, I love being around 19-year-olds who are discovering books for the first time, perhaps discovering their own capacities for self-expression for the first time. So to me, it's still, although I sometimes fantasize about having more time for writing, and that would be a good thing, I also love being in an intellectual community, and the one that I'm in at the University of Western Sydney is very supportive and sustaining and stimulating for my writing. So um, I suppose I only have good things to say about this. Do, do you find that um, this, the students, the, the discussions that you have around, I guess, critical works will often find their way into your writings in some form or another? Uh, not really. I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say that teaching itself enters writing. I mean to say that in the refinement, uh, the sort of strenuous work one does thinking about other people's writing, that, that that helps me understand and perhaps be more critical of my own writing. So it, it's a kind of literary training, I suppose, that I'm uh, wishing to confirm. Yes, and I suppose... Um, as somebody who, who does, and we spoke about this earlier, sit on both sides of the chair, um, the act of reading is, in some ways, it's connected with the act of writing, that you, you, know, you write for your, for your own literary tastes and your own literary, um, uh, I guess, minings as well. 
I hope so. I mean, I think that all good writers are good readers, so it gives me the opportunity to read things sometimes that I would not have encountered before. Uh, one of the things about teaching is that um, every now and then one has to teach a, a book one doesn't particularly like, and even that can be um, an enormous stimulation for writing, to, to, to think about why, why does this book not move me? What, what do I see as its flaws? What do I see as its strengths? And again, that sounds a little banal, but I think that, that it's to do with attending to language, being um, calibrating one's responses more finely to the effects of language and the, the, the sort of affective and intellectually affects. Mm. Effects. <laughs> Effective effects. Now, I know you're still in the promotional phase, um, and this is probably the question that rankles most to any writer, but um, are you working on a new book now, or are there some themes that you're you're keen to explore? Um, no, I'm not working on a new book at the moment. I'm, um, I'm back to my university work in a fairly substantial way, so I have a lot of students to attend to, and studying. Uh, talk to me a little bit more about this notion, too, of time and the way in which um, the past and present intersect in your work, and, and not just in this book, but in, in other books that you've written. It seems to be a, a pretty significant theme for you. It is. It's it's a significant preoccupation. Um, one of the reasons, I think, that I evoked and invoked Slesser is that his poem is a meditation on time. So... He's interested in time as water. It's it's quite a direct analogy that he makes, and and it's it sounds um, I don't know crassly descriptive, but it's not in his work. It's a meditation on fluidity, on the way things sweep over us, the waves of experience, if you like, the way we enter into um, rhythms, wakes. Uh, this notion of time as water, time that is, is a fluid thing, uh, was something that I wanted to think about with five bells. But I realized, too, it's, it's a preoccupation with my other novels because we all know that time is not just clock time, that there's an inner time that sometimes seems to us more precious, more real, and more compelling in terms of how we respond to things than horological time. So I wanted in Five Bells in particular, to take seriously this idea of time as water. So I have a, a teacher who embeds the idea of the clepsydra in the novel. Um, there are teachers who love the arcane, and I had such a teacher as a child. And it's a teacher who, who talks about the clepsydra, the water clock. And the two West Australian characters remember this with great affection. But it's clearly also a, a sort of trigger for the, the way that they think about time and the way that they're suddenly beginning to realize the symbolic or metaphoric import of something that they were told when they were 12. So that idea that time, time is, moves backwards and forwards is not linear, progressive, or continual, but much more fluctuating, much more like... Um, like the rhythms that happen within water, that's something I wanted seriously to entertain in this book, 
Yes, that it's not chopped up into little pieces as we often imagine it. No. That's right. It's what's it's fidget wheel, what's, what's lesser called? It's fidget wheels. Um, the time that you know, this fidget time is not my time. He says at the opening to the poem, and um, it's it's such a wonderful word, fidget, as though time is you know the click 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 mechanism of the interior of the clock. And for many of us, um, in the experiences that we find most profound and most moving. We don't think at all in terms of the regular passing of time. Yes, the bumpkin calculus of time. That's right, bumpkin calculus. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, look, that that is unfortunately um, all we have time for. Speaking of time, um, so Gail, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much, Maggie, for your interest in my my book. And uh, next month we'll be changing tack just a little bit, and we'll be meeting with Sue Collier the co-author of The Complete Guide to Self-Publishing. So um, join us once again then. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.